And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shrine and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. Don't, don't run down now. It's only, it's only March. We have months to go, miles <laughs> to go before we sleep. We can't, we can't burn out this early in the year. Although I'm Is ready. I mean, I <laughs> You're ready to burn out? Yeah. Sort of happy birthday, by well, the way. I, uh, it's time to burn out. I'm, I'm I, 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 well, first of all, uh, yeah, well, it's it's my birthday, so I have a right to burn out. But more important than that, I got back from what for me has always been the official beginning of the convention season, the conference mm-hmm. season, the ICFA, the International Conference from the Fantastic in Orlando, which was wonderful as always. Uh, guests of honor were John Kessel and uh, um, Nikki Solway, who was just delightful, who's I'd never met before except on this podcast. Me either. And we had uh, some really interesting dialogues between uh, Nikki, of course, had written the Karen Joy Fowler Book Club, and Karen Joy Fowler was there. This was the opening panel, which is the only thing I actually chaired. Um, and, of course, I was able to make the segue between Nikki's story and Karen's novel and then John's novel because it has Jane Austen characters in it. And the scholar guest was Fred Bobbing, who's a British scholar who's very knowledgeable about the Gothic. But the one thing I missed, and I've heard wonderful things about it, was an evening session during which uh, John Kessel and Karen Joy Fowler decided to do a dialogue as though they were Mary Shelley and Jane Austen. That would have been funny. And that, by all accounts, absolutely wonderful. You're a terrible man in the field. How come you didn't record that for us so people on the podcast could hear it? I, I, I don't run things. I mean, we could have possibly... I don't think anybody knew that was going to happen. I, I thought you ran everything at Ixfile. I thought it was your, your thing, your bailiwick. It's, it's, I'm, I'm a minor functionary who, who has plaques made by a guy in Wisconsin, and I schlepped them down there in my luggage, and... Once they're gone, I have more space in my luggage. That's the big, you know, change for me at Ico. But it is something I want you to come to someday. I mean, it's going to be a lot of fun every year from now on until, uh, um, I don't know, Florida is gone. And even then, Orlando is relatively safe. <laughs> so about 2020, 2021, somewhere around there then. Yeah. I mean, won't you just move it to higher, have... higher ground then? Um, we could move it to higher ground. I mean, Ikfa after the change, after the climate change, it'll be like you know, Denver. Maybe it's time for Ikfa to move to Denver. There was a conversation years ago, um, and you may have been involved in it when we were talking with Charles about jokingly at that time about what to do with locusts, and uh, we had figured out that by for the amount of money we thought he could get for his house in Oakland, we could probably buy a small town somewhere in the middle of Nebraska, and just. <laughs> Just create a science fiction community of uh, like-minded uh, people who are willing to live in Nebraska. Uh, and that idea fell apart as soon as we couldn't find anybody who wanted to live in Nebraska, except <laughs> the people who are already living there. I, see, I thought you were going to say it fell apart as soon as you couldn't find a group of people you wanted to live with for that long. This is one of the other interesting things. Um, that uh, we, we, we mentioned a little bit uh, at our podcast when we talked about uh, Kate Wilhelm's death, um, and the kind of groups of people they had living together at Milford uh, was a really close-knit but varied and opinionated and prickly group of people. I don't know if you could get a group of science fiction writers or aspiring writers willing to live together for longer than the week it takes to do a the several weeks it takes to do a Clarion. That, that may be I just true. don't think there's a community like that anymore. Well, I don't know. Certainly, I think the, the writer's workshop structure plainly gives a driving motivation to remain together. Just yeah. sort of coming together to socially be there, I don't know. I mean, my observation for the most part of a science fiction community is that it is a migratory, transitory thing. And so being migratory and transitory, you don't, you know, the depth of um, tolerance you need is, is comparatively low quite often. And that makes it a lot easier. Putting it in permanent exposure is another thing. Of course, this digresses. You're talking about ikfa. Um, it's, so oh, it sounds like it was a good, it was a good fa. 
It was, it, it was good fun. The 200th anniversary of Frankenstein. There were a lot of discussions about Frankenstein. Uh, there was a uh, luncheon speech by Nikki Solway, which was just stunning. One of the best lun- luncheon speeches we've had, which ended with the chilling notion uh, of her being in Florida, the second or third time she's ever been in the United States, and only uh, several miles, but within uh, an easy drive of the Parkland school shootings. And she ended up by really coming up with a chilling idea that these disaffected and seriously violent young men are our Frankenstein creations. They're something which we have given birth to. Um, Mm -hmm. And she wasn't meaning that in quite a literal sense, and I'm expressing it very badly, but it was. it's always fascinating when you have somebody looking at the situation in the United States from the perspective of, I think she teaches at South Queensland, uh, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's, it's, a, it's a very bracing but uh, realistic perspective. So we were very pleased to have her, her there. We were have, pleased to have John Kessel, who has been attending regularly for a long time, and now, as we discussed when we had him on the podcast, has two novels out within one year. Um, yeah. Did you get a chance and, to talk to him? Uh, Do we know what he's doing next? Uh, actually, I didn't find out what he was doing next. Um, you really I are guess. a lousy man in the field, Gary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm I a say, in, cub reporter. I should be fired. I mean, uh, in Locus has not allowed me to be a news gatherer for decades now. Find out what... Find out what John Kessel is doing. Find out what Stephen Donaldson is doing. Well, he's he's having key lime pie. Uh, that much I found out. <laughs> so I was going to say, in in your defense, right? It is. It's not like when we're together at a convention, it goes any better, is it? It's like you're still sitting there going, we probably should do something, but let's just go out for dinner or have some drinks with somebody. Well, that's exactly what why I missed all the good panels is because I was out at this wonderful pool bar, chatting up people and um, and and talking to uh, young writers that I didn't know very well. I mean, uh, Sam Miller has been there a couple of years in a row mm-hmm. now, and that's where I've gotten to know him very well. Yeah. And of course, he has this terrific novel, Blackfish City, coming out, which we'll be talking about at some point. Uh, Kelly Robson uh, was there. So, the, and one of the interesting things that, here's my observation um, that. When you talk to newer writers, and I, I don't even want to use the term younger writers because uh, you know, Kelly started later than many writers. Uh, she's younger than I am, certainly, but she, Sam Miller is really young. You talk to them about what they've read, and it's all over the map. Uh, and then you talk to older writers, and I shouldn't mention names because I haven't gotten the permission, but I've talked to two or three older writers at ICFA and briefly before, who are depressed that they don't think they're being read anymore. They're no longer part of the discussion. They haven't been a major force for uh, 20 years. A situation, <coughs> a situation exacerbated by a recent uh, brouhaha over ReaderCon disinviting some older writers. And my re- response to that is um, when you talk to newer readers and writers, there's not, a, there's not a cadre. There's not a generation that reads the same thing the way, the, the way there was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Oh, for example, so many things to, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so many things to unpack in this sort of space. Uh, I mean, yeah, okay. because you start off with this idea that, first of all, everybody should be reading the same thing, when the truth is that the mm-hmm. pattern of the last 20 years has been completely at odds with that idea. And if you ignore publishing and you only look at social uh, patterns of the last 20 years, particularly in, in and around the genre fields, it's all about atomization. I mean, we, we've been talking about it here probably since mm-hmm. the first handful of podcasts, and that's happening more and more and more. And so probably what you're getting is you're getting people who are reading well and clearly within their own space. And so mm-hmm. they're not reading more widely right now because they've, in some cases for the first time ever, really have the ability to read in a, if you like, uh, in a vertical kind of pile rather than horizontally because there's greater depth of work available for them to read in the area they're most interested. You know, so there's that as, as a first thing. Then, well, that's, and, yeah. and that is a point that I was trying to make, not as coherently as you just made it, but in, in the era when people slightly older than me even uh, were, were growing up 
they all read the same things because they only had a few things to choose from. They had three magazines and two or three publishers. Mm -hmm. Everybody who grew up in the 50s and 60s knew who Gordon Dixon was or who Keith Larmer was or who – I mean, I'm just picking names, not the big names. But, of course, they knew who Clark and Asimov and Heinlein were because that was all there was. But that period of science fiction history, which people persist in calling the Golden Age, even though it demonstrably in many ways wasn't, lasted about 20 years. It lasted basically the, the, the Campbell era roughly from 1939 to maybe 1960, early 60s. And that's disappeared since then. It disappeared in the, in the 80s with cyberpunk. And now there's, you're right, there are so many choices that there isn't a generation that reads the same thing anymore. Yeah. In other words, that's, everybody makes their own canon. I, well, I think that's true. But I think you know, that, that vertical reading that I was talking about, mm -hmm. as opposed to horizontal, it was just reading science fiction in 1950, right? If, you know, because that's how much there was. Now, I mean, we hear all this, you still hear this really sort of tiresome complaining from people about science fiction being a ghetto and all that kind of abs just absurd nonsense. Um, and yet science fiction is so prevalent, so embedded into everything now, that it shows up in all kinds of strange and interesting places. And when you have people looking around very, very publicly for ways to experience them themselves in fiction now, there's a much greater and growing mm. chance for that to happen. So there's that. I also think, I mean, the distribution networks have changed. The yeah. way we access fiction has physically changed, and that impacts. Probably the harshest thing to ask an older writer who is worried that they're not being read is this. Have you written a major book lately? Stan Robinson started his career, you know, in the 1970s, I guess, late 1970s, I suppose. We are now at the stage where he is an, a, a very major science fiction writer. He still is producing major works. Gene Wolfe stayed at the heart of the conversation or close to it right up into his 80s because he was still producing major works. Right. And I think that that does happen. But I think even among those people who are producing major works into their 80s and, uh, well, I mean, Le Guin and Gene Wolfe certainly come to mind as people who are still writing widely and that sort of thing. They'd established their own readerships at that point, though. <coughs> hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and that, I think, has to do with that vertical reading. There are, and have been for decades now, Ursula Le Guin readers, some of whom are science fiction readers and some of whom are Ursula Le Guin readers. Um, sure. And I mean, also, I mean, like, the nature of uh, what people want to read changes. I mean, I was trying to think of a name, because I mean, these are people who I know weren't addicted, so I will put them forward because they cannot possibly be compromised. Ah. Uh, a Ben Bova, right? Mm -hmm. Ben Bova, you know, had a window in time when he was very uh, prominent in the field. He was part of a discussion. His books were read. Uh, mm -hmm. that really began to ebb off in the last quarter of his career. And I would imagine, though I don't have book sales figures to actually, you know, back this up, that he's not as widely read as he used to be, and he's certainly not widely talked about. No, he's not. And we've, we've, we've talked about, I mean, part of the issue with, with Bova was that he did tend to write near-future books, some of which are... Uh, can become very badly dated very quickly. Um, one of one of his late novels, in fact, was called Cyberbooks, which was written before the days of Kindle, and today is amusingly off base. But but I think you're right about writers whose major work. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the ones we've talked about before. You know, one of the major works, possibly the major science works from Brian Aldiss's career, the Heliconia trilogy, isn't being read or talked about. Oh, okay, let's say this. It's not being talked about anymore. The point I was making with these older writers is the fact something is not being talked about doesn't mean it's not being read. You'll find individual readers who have discovered this novel or that novel or this writer or that writer. My point is you'd no longer have a group of readers who all discover the same writer at the same time. I think that's true. Uh, and I understand sort of the, not even just the ego me uh, mechanism uh, at play, I understand the thing that says that if 
if within science fiction circles people are no longer discussing your work, do you get mm. forgotten? You know? And that's a very unpalatable thing to consider. You know? Mm. Look at, I mean, you raised Brian Aldous as an example. I don't really hear anybody talking about Brian Aldous at all. You know, it would not shock me if his work disappeared from the world, frankly. Mm. But the question that I'm asking is, who do you hear getting talked about um, for books that they wrote maybe 10 or 20 years ago? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that those discussions tend not to happen the way at the end of the 1980s by the end of the 1980s pretty much anyone who claimed to be interested in science fiction had to have read Neuromancer didn't have to have read Count Zero or Mona Lisa Obadiah, but you had to have read I don't think there's a book like that these days I think by the end of the 1990s you would think that everybody seriously interested in science fiction would have read uh, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy I don't know who's reading it or talking about it these days. Well, I mean, let, let's, stand let's, let's, stuff, but... let's stop there for a second and uh -huh. try and consider one part of this. It's this. You should say, you know, say, say the Mars trilogy isn't being discussed. Where would you expect it to be being discussed if it were being discussed? What is the what is the, the, the noise, the chatter, if you like, that people aren't hearing that is disturbing them? Is it as something as simple as people aren't coming up to me at conventions and asking to, me to sign my books? Is it the books are going out of print? Mm. Is it that there aren't academic articles being written? Where is the actual uh, conversational space that's gone, don't, gone dead? Because now that I think about it, I'm thinking, well, I was talking to my friends as I've grown up through the field, I've mm -hmm. talked various times about current books, maybe an older book I've encountered, and I do see some of that. You know, I do. You know, um, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, but I still do. Where, where's this forum that these older writers are imagining, or is it sales that are, that are off? Uh, sales may be an issue, although, again, without naming the older writers, the ones I'm talking about get advances, and they tend to earn out advances. Their sales may not be what they were, but they're doing well enough. I mean, they're getting published. Uh, and, they're, and, and they're making a living at it. Uh, I think that what you're saying, this forum, doesn't exist anymore. That's exactly the point. That where the, was it before? Where, where is it? It might have been, been on panels at conventions. It might have been in letter columns at, Asimo, at Analog. Um, it might have been uh, through fanzines. But I think one of the things that's happened, and this is this is a, an unoriginal argument, uh, is that the speed of social media now gives a book, what, a three or four week window to be talked about. A couple of weeks talking about anticipating it, I can't wait to read this. A uh, bunch of people talk about how great it was. And then three or four weeks later, uh, it'll come up again in awards nominations. But you don't have a group of the same people talking about the same books. Um, but piffle. my point piffle. Mm, no, what do I mean piffle? Piffle. Um... We're still talking about Yoon Ha Lee's trilogy, uh, which mm -hmm. is not complete yet. We are very much still talking about Nora Jemison's trilogy, which is complete now, and may complete. well end up in the Hugos this coming uh, you know, this year. I mean, those are books that are not very old, uh, and, and you exactly add the pattern you're talking about. Book. Yeah, and Lucky as well. Yeah. There's absolutely a forum. They're not the people. They're not necessarily the writers that you're thinking about or referring to, but the actual mechanism is still there, isn't it? The mechanisms have moved largely online. Mm -hmm. um, they're, 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 one of the things, okay, one of the things that one of these writers uh, said to me, and this will give some sense of the age, was I miss Jeannie. Uh, the old discussion board, which was pretty much a, a, science fiction, a science fiction fans discussion board before there were a thousand different discussion boards. And there, there did seem to be a, uh, establishing an online community of science fiction geeks in the very early days of the Internet, really. Now, the point I'm making to these writers is that, no, that, that, that group isn't there anymore. But still, when I talk to younger writers, every one of them has one or two favorite books by the older writers. In other words, people are being read, but they're not being read in blocks the way they used to be read, except for blocks? currently hot. 
novelists. Um, I mean, everybody's, you're right, you, we could go through names of people who are read very uh, uniformly by serious readers in the field. And you've mentioned Nora Jemison, we've mentioned Ann Leckie, uh, we could certainly add Nettie Okorafor to that. We could add Kim Stanley Robinson to that. But the writers who haven't had major works in the last three or four or ten years still have lots of readers. They just don't know how to find those readers. They don't know how to find where they are because there's no one location for them anymore. There's I'm no genie discussion for them. I'm, I'm trying ahead. to kind of like break this down in my mind, and you know, I'm probably not the best or most coherent person to discuss the subject, but I'm not entirely sure it's not just that the generation of writers you're referring to are older and they're a little bit unsure as how to access whatever discussion is going on. Could be, could be. You know, and it could be. And that, I mean, that's understandable. Um, and it's it's always going to be the case that works fall by the wayside. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate and it can be sad at times, and sometimes works get reconsidered. But I mean, just think about the, you know your own experience between when you first experienced science fiction, and hmm. thirty years later, how many books have disappeared? I mean, in, you know, from my experience, I, I really, really actively was paying close attention to new publications from say the 19, early 1980s. And I can look mm-hmm. back at issues of Locus, say, from the 1980s, and just the, the the number of books that have fallen from discussion, the number of mm-hmm. writers. But it's just a natural part of moving forward in time. Some things still seem to resonate and remain interesting. Some things, unfortunately, just fall between the cracks. And then hopefully... Uh, people in our kinds of positions will say, well, you know, it's really interesting. We haven't talked about Carter Schultz in a long time, and his mm-hmm. book is worth talking about. Or, you know, that Susie Mitch Key Charnas book from the 1980s, Motherlines, that was worth talking mm-hmm. about. That was interesting. Or let's talk about Sherry Tepper, because even though, you know, her books were all over the place and the last 20 years were a mess, there were some great books in there, mm-hmm. and so on and so on. Now, what, what, probably part of the, the problem with, you know, for people like us is there's so much other things to talk about. And right. we are focused on, you know, like what we're focused on right now, I mean, you're saying let's talk to Sam Miller about Blackfish City. And we should because he's interesting mm-hmm. he's new. And that's where things are going. Uh, we should find a way to talk to Saad Hossein, if we can, about his book, Jin mm-hmm. City even though how we're going to work that in Bangladesh, I'm not sure, but, you know, and there are all kinds of other really interesting people. You were talking about, uh, or you mentioned Kelly Robson, whose God's Monsters and Lucky Peach came out this week, I think, in which everybody listening to the podcast, I'm sure, has already bought and read or will in a minute. That was a plug. Um, Or any one of a number of other similar kind of books. There's too much to drag your attention away, and so, like, if you're thinking, is it time to think about, and I'll pick an absurd example because that, again, I say June, right? You know, June gets mm-hmm. lots of attention anyway, so, that's, so it's healthy, so you can say this, but it's like, I haven't reread June in 30 years, have you? Mm, I, I didn't finish it, let me put it that way. <laughs> Wasn't, Herbert was never an elegant stylist, and that's one of the no. things that comes, becomes apparent. On the other hand, and one of the one of the things I'm fascinated by is when you talk to uh, places that are reprinting older science fiction. Open Road, for example, the e-books. They've, people like Clifford Semak. Still, there there are readers out there, and apparently they're not all older readers being nostalgic. There are people who are curious about it. Well, look, uh, there's, so, there's certainly that kind of phenomenon that's more readily observable in, say, the music area, where everything is available sort of at the same time. There's no, not quite the same awareness of you know, the time and context when the work came out. So it's just whatever you happen to encounter out of your own collect music, your dad's music, yeah. your friend's music, whatever, and it's all kind of almost contemporary to you, and that's all that matters. And there's an element of that. There isn't that same, particularly when you're reading digitally, of all things, and I read digitally, you read digitally, I read you know, analog, mm-hmm. so, so on. Um, if you pick up a copy of The Zap Gun by Philip K. Dick on a Kindle, it looks pretty much similar in its packaging to the next uh, William Gibson novel. It yeah. doesn't look like an old-age 
paperback. There's a physical sense of time that gets kind of erased in the digital environment as well. And that has an impact on how people think about things. But the main thing is that most of the people are talking are talking about today and tomorrow, not yesterday right now. Or when they do, they're trying to uncover people who don't already have the audience that you're talking about. Well, that's absolutely true. And that's the other thing that comes up sometimes with younger authors. When you've got, uh, when you've written something like, oh, I don't know, uh, we could certainly, well, Dune, uh, Dune's not a good example. Uh, Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, terrific novel, first one in his career. People are still reading it, probably more than any other single Joe Haldeman novel. Then I talk to younger writers who want to know, how can I do that? Uh, in other words, they're, um, these people haven't specifically asked me that, but if you're a younger writer and you've got last year's hot book, let's say you're Annalee Newitz and, and, and you have Autonomous, let's say you have Blackfish City, which in my mind, is sort of like this year's Autonomous. Maybe it's because it's got this Arctic thing going on in both well, mountains. Well, out yet. Well, okay, but nevertheless, it's... But yeah. It's reasonable. It seems to me it's reasonable for Sam or Anna Lee to wonder who's going to be reading my novel in 20 or 30 years. I don't know if they answer, ask that question, if they care about that question, but uh, it's I'm an issue that never came up. It's a reasonable off. question. I, th- I think, no, I don't think that's a reasonable question for an Annalee Newitz to be asking particularly. I think if I, yeah. you know, it would be a more reasonable question for, for Annalee Newitz to be worrying about who's going to read her book today and how to get it to them and who's going to be yeah. reading her book next year. 20 years from now, it's a pretty abstract kind of a concept to be thinking about. Uh, it's the kind of thing you think about when you're sitting in the glades of Florida drinking by, by a pool wondering about whether your career is still, you know, gaining traction, not whether you're, when you're starting off. I, I would be surprised if a, if a Sam Miller was particularly fixated on, or, or even... I don't, I, don't think, I don't think either of those authors are particularly fixated on it. But it's a question that, that has to come up, and it's a question that never came up in the 30s and 40s with pulp writers. They never expected to see books, let alone people reading them 50 years in the future. Ah, um, now you're talking about the Paul McCartney syndrome. Right. The Paul McCartney syndrome? Well, okay. Or more of the Beatles syndrome. When the Beatles signed their contracts, you know, their first contracts, and they're mm. in you know, 1960 or whatever it was, they had no idea that, that, that it would be possible to be in a band five years later yeah. or ten years later, never mind 50 years later. When the Rolling Stones came on the scene, when they first formed, the idea that a band would last more than three years was unusual. When, you know, um, when... When Van Vogt was writing for Campbell in 1939, and science fiction as a commercial magazine genre in North America was five years old, nobody mm-hmm. was thinking about will anybody be reading The Weapon Makers of Isher in 20 years' time? No, nobody expected they'd be it, it, in print it, after six months. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of not relevant to ask how, how, you know, how they felt about that kind of thing. Uh, and probably for most of the, fortunately for a num- an amount, number of that generation, they probably felt they would have a posthumous career or a later life career because it ended up lasting as long as it did. I mean, look at Jack Williamson. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of them as well, it didn't. It just came and went. I mean, um, I'm really trying to decide whether I think this is an issue at all. It, well, it's, it, it may not be an issue with younger writers at all. With older writers, I guess what I was trying to say by way of encouragement is that there are substantial readers who discover your earlier work and even your less well-known work, but you can't find them easily in any one place. Writers, uh, readers are much more independent. It's your, it's your vertical point. You know, readers establish their own canons. There may be a canon that includes... Um, it might include... Uh, River Solomon and Chip Delaney and Ta-Nehisi Coates, which it may be a, uh, a canon that's defined not in terms of genre, but in terms of voice uh, and, and, and in terms of background. Uh, there's a post-colonial... And, and academics are both guilty and, um, and and deserve credit for some of this. There's a post-colonial, post-colonialist way of reading, which includes a good deal of science fiction, but includes a good deal that isn't science fiction. Uh, so I think that the good news is that the science fiction readers are no longer coming from one place. They're no longer reading in one way. And 
in terms of identifying, okay, how many people read Flowers for Algernon this year, that's, that's hard to figure out who they were. But somebody's reading them. My point is, I, I guess the quotation which I love to keep hammering at from David Lindsay, who wrote A Voyage to Arcturus in 1920, what, which turns out now, uh, uh, almost a century later, to be one of the widely influential fantasy novels of the 20th century. The number of writers who have read it and acknowledged it and imitated it is astonishing. It sold 625 copies when it was published. And it was his first novel, no, second novel. Each novel after that sold fewer than 625 copies. So here's a guy whose best-selling novel sold 625 copies, and then, and it's never been out of print. Um, and he, what Lindsay said was, as, as his last novel couldn't even get published uh, in his lifetime, he said, somewhere somebody will be reading one of my novels every year from now on. And he turned out to be more or less right. More than a handful of people, but by and large, there are people who are kept alive. Um, I'm not talking about science fiction, pulp science fiction writers. We had a couple of good uh, discussions this weekend about Arthur Mackin, uh, who's Mackin is being read every year uh, somewhere by a substantial number of in intelligent readers. But they're not. They may be organized into a Mackin club somewhere. I don't know. But by and large, that's what I think is is both encouraging and discouraging. You can't find the coherent science fiction readership. You can't say, okay, everybody who su subscribes to Analog read all of Gordon R. Dixon when he was publishing, or, or, or Keith Lama, or whoever. That group doesn't exist anymore. What you do have are many more groups with many fewer people in them, mm. and those groups are enough to keep your novels earning out their advances. In other words, uh, the only writer who's failed is the one who can't sell the novel anymore, or sell a collection of short stories, yeah, or a story. You're, you're, I, I guess you're my question a... about what is the other than the disappointment of a writer's ego for a moment, mm -hmm. which, which which is a thing you shouldn't disparage it, right? I mean, um, hmm. so what? What what's the actual what's what's the broken thing? about these books not being discussed? My point is that, uh, is that it's not broken. My point is that that system of discussing books is broken, is, is long since disappeared. Um, I'm pretty sure right now that if I wanted to, I'm, I'm not sure of this at all, but I'll make it up as I go along, that if I wanted to find a Captain SP Meet discussion group somewhere on the web, there's probably some group of people out there uh, People like uh, people I've not even read, uh, who won the World Fantasy Award, Hugh B. Cave, terrifically uh, prolific pulp writer. I don't know if anybody that you or I know has ever read a story by Hugh B. Cave, but it turns out there there's a group of people that keep him keep him alive. Um, I'm just saying that the audience is atomized; it hasn't gone away. It just no, no. is the, no the, longer, the, the, the longer readership is at, the, the, the readership is undeniably atomized. The field has undeniably atomized, um, mm -hmm. and for a lot for a period of time, I've been saying that I wonder if and how it will ever come back together again. Uh, if only so that you have a sense of what's happening in "quote unquote" science fiction as as, as a whole, rather than in its in its parts, mm -hmm. because I find that of interest. Um, I think it is a thing, um, other than hoping people won't forget about things. I don't know that it's an issue, but, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm sorry for the writers who feel as though people no longer care because there isn't a mechanism that they're aware of whereby they can find that people care. I mean, I'll never forget in the oh. early 2000s when China Mieville had Perdido Street Station out and he attended mm. the San Jose Worldcon, I guess it must have been, or World Fantasy, maybe Worldcon, mm -hmm. 2002 Worldcon maybe, which is where I met him first. And he met Robert Silverberg there. And Bob yeah. was still you know, writing actively at that time and editing actively, but he was getting towards the later part of his, his career. And he was stunned that yeah. China was deeply steeped in his... his in, in, in Bob's career, really knew his work in detail and in substance. I think he found that a heartening experience. And there's no reason that any writer who had some kind of impact may not have a similar kind of experience. 
you know. Um, the, the real question sometimes is whether the writer's assessment of their own career is consistent with the assessment of the rest of the fields. That's a problem not just among younger writers. That's a no. problem among only 99.8% of the writers, probably. Probably about 99.8% um, of humans. 998 whatever. Uh, th that's a general problem, but again, you'll find... I've had conversations like this, too. I got into a conversation with Neil Gaiman about Eric Frank Russell. Mm -hmm. uh, I said something disparagingly about Eric Frank Russell in front of Neil, and he went on this sort of little mini-lecture. He knew Russell's, Russell's work better than I did. And what I'm saying is young, hot... Look at the degree to which Neil virtually worships Gene Wolfe, and any number of other younger writers do as well. No, 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 no. Uh, Stop right there. Neil is no longer a younger writer. Well, that's true. He is not. Um, you know, uh, it, it's the 30-year-olds kind of thing that you're, you're 20 and 30-year-olds you're talking about. I mean, when Neil was a younger writer and Sandman mm -hmm. was new in the world, or he'd only just written his Duran Duran book, then it was interesting, you know, remarkable. Now, I mean, how old is Neil? In his late 50s? It's got to be mid-50s, I'd say. Yeah. So, um, yeah, hardly a younger writer. Um, it would be interesting to know how consistently, you know, sort of younger re writers do read back into the history of the field. I think they do. I don't think they mm -hmm. talk about it as much. I remember that we, a couple of years ago, and neither of these writers now would be considered younger writers mm -hmm. particularly, but we had that conversation with Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Bear at World Fantasy. Mm -hmm. in, in the Coot Street archives, everybody. Um, and they were deeply knowledgeable, deeply, deeply knowledgeable right. in the history of the field. You know, and I don't doubt that were you to talk to Daniel Abraham, were you to talk to, you know, Anne Leckie, even though probably not a young, young writer, even though a newish writer, if you were to talk to you know, Sam Millers and whoever else, they would all come up and surprise you. Exactly. You know, Lavi Tidar is a good example, and he's very evident in his own fiction uh, that he's, he's doing this sort of thing. I mean, I, 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 I get a sense you're putting me in the position, which is not the position I'm taking. The position I'm taking with these writers is that there are somebody, in, in David Lindsay's terms, somebody, and sometimes fairly important people, are reading your works, even your minor works, um, every year. Um, and and that, that's... It's, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's just that there's no longer, uh, you know, uh, an, an agreed-upon thing over a period of years. Okay, I'll agree that uh, when Nora Jemison's trilogy was coming out, or Anne Leckie's trilogy was coming out, uh, or, or Sujin Liu's trilogy was coming out, everybody needed to at least get through a couple of those, uh, if not all of them, uh, in, in the trilogy. But that discussion, like I say, uh, are people still talking about the three-body problem the way they were a couple of years ago? Um, well, I they... mean, no, but I don't think it's gone away from discussion at all. And I, no, it has. I think Cixin Lu now has a real Western career. Mm. I think you that's know. true. Um, I mean, there, there, are, there are things that I think the other thing that bothers writers, and not just the older writers, and this is kind of a report of gripe sessions from sitting around the pool, is that you do have, um, for every arrival, and every writer I've talked to, is enormously pleased that the movie Arrival exists. It's an intelligent movie, a well-made movie, based on a respected short story by a beloved author, although Ted Chang would kill me for saying he's a beloved author. And this, But, but apart from that, uh, there's a sense of movies recycling old ideas, and um, for every... For every arrival or annihilation that comes along that seems to respect the literature it's based on, there is a um, the Pacific Rim uprising, or there's a the movie that's coming out next week, Ready Player One, which strikes me as really retro. I mean, it's really going back mm -hmm. to sure. um, a, a novel that seemed to me to be terribly dated even when it came out, what, five, six, seven years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, Look, I've got no doubt that the, the whole thing is... That, in fact, it's, I've heard it's a terrible film, but... Um, even Yeah, very retro. But, I mean, isn't that also completely normal, that there's you know, a small 
uh, group of or a, small, a small percentage of work that is new and cutting edge and interesting, and the rest which is kind of stuff. You know, I mean, like, yes, you've got Annihilation, which is great, and Alex Garland's done a really interesting job with it. And yes, you've got mm-hmm. stuff like um, Arrival, which had, you know, which was applauded and everything else. And just as a side note, doesn't it kind of do your head in that we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of Ted's career? Now, that, that, that's kind of a bit, bit, bit of a nice. head fake. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, but while that serious kind of science fiction as part of media is not necessarily overwhelmingly a different amount of percentage than that serious amount of science fiction being published as, you know, in, in, in book form as opposed to the large amount that's actually not. Right. So, you know. And I think that one, I mean, that becomes apparent when you have TV series or movies that are now being made by people who clearly are science fiction writers, but my fear is, for the most part, not very good science fiction writers. Yeah. Or yeah. not science fiction readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I don't know where we're going with it. We segued into a no. discussion of movies. We <laughs> Let, let's say, let, 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 let's segue to the end. I mean, I'm not sure where to take this other than to say that it's it's interesting and important to keep looking for books that uh, maintain a life. It's also mm-hmm. interesting to look for uh, where we still have a moment in science fiction where there is as close to a water cooler moment book as we can have. You know, the one that mm-hmm. everybody's talking about. Just like you know, I mean, whether it was the Wind Up Girl some years ago whether it was, yeah. you know, Neuromancer years and years ago, whether it was whatever. It's just interesting to see the whole field actually have, have a rare moment of something to talk about. You know, mm-hmm. I had I'd thought that New York 2140, the Stan Robinson book from last year, might have been that. And I suppose next Sunday we'll find out uh, whether uh, it was. But, you know, and what right. happens to Rachel next Sunday? It's Easter. Dan Robinson rises into heaven on a cloud of flaming glory? I mean, what has this got to do with, with what we're going to find out on Easter? They announced the Hugo nominations, Gary. So so people do rise into heaven on a cloud of flaming glory. <laughs> uh, it's just that we don't know who they are yet. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely the metaphor I would choose to use to describe getting a Hugo nomination ascending into heaven. <laughs> well... I mean, it is an honor. Don't, don't misunderstand me, but that's funny. Um, yeah. Look, since you're going to have to write this up and explain this conversation for the, for the story note, or for the, for the episode notes, Gary, shall we find another thing to talk about? <laughs> I mean, the Hugo Awards are coming out next week. Uh, you should be putting together a world fantasy ballot if you're eligible to do so. Um, it is awards of Palooza season. It can't be that long till they actually give out the nebulas, you know. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this, because you just handed in your column to me, and I have opened uh-huh. it and looked at it this much and then put it away because I have to edit it shortly. Um, what have you been reading? Um, I, will, I will give uh, uh, two answers of things, uh, three answers of things that are all in the column. Uh, one is... It's, it's kind of awkward, maybe awkward to you to talk about because you in, you, you acquired uh, Ian McDonald's time the novella uh, Time Pass, excellent novella, uh, and I think I may have mentioned it last week. It's interesting that I've noticed this before uh, that he has enormous control over his prose. This is a gorgeously written novella. It's sensitive. It's um, it's romantic. It's poetic in many ways, and uh, this is coming off of. A Luna Wolf Moon, which is kind of a flat-out, stab-in-the-back political espionage adventure on the moon. Uh, so I, I, I love the variety. Uh, we did mention Blackfish City, uh, which I think is going to be terrific. And the one that I, the one that the writer that I'm really impressed with uh, consistently, and who does not show up in the United States, is Simon Ings, who started out as kind of a super violent post cyberpunk writer. What? 20-some years ago yeah. with City of the Iron Hardwired Fish. Hardwired or something, was it? Hardwired. Uh, Hardwired. City Hardwired? Of the no, no, Hardwired. Hardwired was Walter John Williams. Hardwired was Walter John Williams, yeah. Uh, Hardwired. But he was uh, really, well, violent and colorful and that sort of thing, but then a, uh, a couple of years ago with Wolves, wrote one of these brilliantly literary novels that is also a good science fiction 
imagining about augmented reality. This one is a much more radical novel. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if these novels uh, are too British uh, to to draw American publishers. I have no idea whether they're going to be published in America or not. But they're very sort of British literary family tradition in one way and radically off the wall in another way. And I find that kind of thing fascinating. I don't know. Uh, I, I also I, read... I'm sorry. Uh, the, the other one, which I think was a lot of fun, was Catherine Valenti's Space Opera, which is yeah. the sort of thing that it can set you off uh, on kinds of lectures. Jack Vance wrote a, wrote a novel called Space Opera 50 years ago, I guess. And Anne McCaffrey and, edited an anthology of the same title as well. And, and Brian Aldous, I think, had an anthology of space operas at some point. Um, so space operas, but, but, but the thing that, that um, the Vance novel has in common with the, um, Valenti. With the Valenti novel is that they both actually deal with music. Uh, and science fiction about music is kind of interesting. Uh, there's, to be honest, Catalini's novel is a riff. It's a long riff of, uh, of Douglas Adams' kind of hitchhiker's guide, imagining one civilization after another, one funniest. But, but the stuff about music in it is pretty substantial. So you've got a whole kind of disco universe built on um, pop music of, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, and it kind of raises the question we were talking about earlier, what do younger writers know? Why does, why does Catherine M. Valenti even know the song MacArthur Park by Jimmy Webb, which was... Everywhere, which, Gary. It's not everywhere. I haven't heard that song in 30 years. It was recorded by Richard Harris. Robert, no, yeah, Richard Harris recorded it, I guess. And it's other a bizarre and ends up on bloody American Idol or something, and suddenly everybody's leaving cake out in the rain. Well, anyway, there's, and this is one of the other tra traditions which I believe started with the N.M. Banks. There's an alien spaceship called Cake in the Rain in this novel. Did anybody come up with these waggish names for spaceships before Ian Banks? No, I'm thinking. Um, see, Patrick Nielsen Hayden would probably give you 30 answers off the top of his head. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to give you the, I don't think so, I don't know. Maybe we should ask Patrick Nielsen Hayden. We could do that. Um, Shout out to Patrick Hello, if you're listening. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I've got I've got some other things. I I always get some piles of bestseller things coming in because they they found my address. They know, <laughs> they know what. <laughs> like what? Go, give me give me two. Maybe you should maybe 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 I had them sent to you and you've been ignoring them. No, I know I I know perfectly well when something comes from Locus or when I get an email from some publicist. Hi, Jim here from XYZ Publishing Company. We'd like to send you a copy of, as a matter of fact, the last email I got was trying to send me a copy of Blackfish City. Uh, but there are, let me see, what do I, I'm just going to walk across the room here and see what things might have come in from these places. I have a novel called The Feed by Nick Clark Window, which might you may have brilliant. sent to me. Might be brilliant. Uh, I have, this is something that the author sent to me, but it's very interesting Stephen Erickson's first hard SF novel, Rejoice, which is coming out July or August, something along those lines. Didn't he do a space uh, opera? It's a space opera, apparently. But he's done it before. He's done a bunch of them. Not for a long, long time. Um, I have, uh, which I am looking forward to because I enjoyed the first one, European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman. That's not a bestseller type, but that looks, I, mean, I hope it is. That looks like but a it's, big book, Gary. It, it's 700 pages. I talked to Dora about this. It's, I don't know if it's fair. I mean, it's not her fault. She swears it's not her fault. If you write a really engaging novel, which is 350, 400 pages, normal novel size, first novel in the trilogy, you get your readers all excited, and volume two comes out, and it's twice as long. <laughs> um, and I'm going to read it because I'm committed, and it'll probably be very good. And then the other things, wait a minute, I'm walking over to the other pile of books that just came in literally yesterday and today. I have, I haven't even looked at this, I have Awakened mm -hmm. by James and Darren Wearmouth. I have no idea what it's about. Um, just as you know, you know, dear listeners, Gary is 
held up the arc, the arc of this book to the camera, and I've just had the riveting vision of him reading the back cover blurb. It was a golden podcast moment. I'm 72 years old. My memory is going. What do you expect? Here's, here's a novel which has a blurb from Warren Ellis and Adam Roberts and Adrian Tchaikovsky. It's called Origami by Rachel Armstrong. You should review that for us. Oh. Hmm? You should review that. I need to read. I'll be glad to read it. Um, but the thing is, that's what's interesting about what comes in now. There are things that come in from the publicity machine at the major publishers. That one was not a major publisher. There are things that come in from the in-house publishers, which could be mm-hmm. you know, Golox or Orbitz or Tor.com. There are things that come from small independent presses, which you may never have heard of, that sometimes look interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you discover things like I discovered one of my I feel one of my discoveries I wasn't the only one who discovered it but River Solomon uh, An Unkindness of Ghosts small press book didn't know who the author was uh, Generation Starship Trail the tale could have been really uh, disastrous and it was a brilliant novel I thought so this is so that's what is one of the worst episodes we ever did <laughs> We have to promise we next probably, week to plan. Uh, next week, let's, let's, let's talk to get somebody who's, who's more coherent than either you or I are. That's and, not really uh, a challenge, we'll is it, Gary? It's not, it's not much of a challenge at this point, is it? No, not at all. Look, it's, let's face it. It's late in the Saturday evening, in the evening for you. It's Sunday morning for me. Neither of us are probably at our best. And I haven't read a science fiction novel this year yet, so... That's kind of impressive. I've read a few. And there, there are some great ones coming out, so we'll keep up with them. We'll sort of talk, I suppose, next week. No, we can't talk next week about the Hugo nominations because they won't quite be out yet. Well, I actually, we, we, have the opportunity, we have the opportunity to do that. We could even look for a special guest to join us if you want because we can actually probably do – I've got a long, long, long weekend next week, Gary, so we can probably even do two episodes oh. next week. Um. And here we'll do two episodes next weekend. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. it'll, be, it'll be the highlight of the weekend. No, I've got a five-day weekend, I think, and SwanCon, which is the national convention, uh, where the Australian Science Fiction Convention is on next weekend. So there'll be that. I'll be seeing Cat Sparks, who's known to everybody here. Excellent. Say hello uh, to Cat. I will say hello to Cat. Her book, Lotus Blue, is up for the Aurealis Awards next weekend. So we. We wish her and all other nominees the, the very best of luck with the awards. You know, and we'll know that get sucked up into other awards as well. And we'll see what happens, yeah. What else? And we'll be talking to some of these brand new writers that we've been talking about. Uh, yeah, we're now filling cool. to get to that last the next next eight minutes into the podcast. Um We have eight minutes? Okay. We've got eight minutes to go. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. All right, all right, all right. What are you looking forward to that I haven't mentioned? Uh, that are major things coming out this year? Well, I mean, I've mentioned it before. The biggest one for me, obviously, is Red Moon by Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm-hmm. And there's also the new uh, Bill Gibson book, Agency, towards the end of the year. Uh, I know that there's going to be a, a new Connie Willis book, which, I mean, I wasn't the biggest fan of her most recent book, but there'll be that. Um, I'm very curious to read Dora's book, that, you know, the... Uh, Victorian, mm-hmm. uh, the, Victor- the Victorian gentlewoman's book that you, that you mentioned, um, and you know I've got a whole bunch of stuff that's coming to me one way or the other, and I, I guess as well. I mean, I'm sort of, and this sounds generic or stri- or sort of vague, but I'm looking forward to the books that I haven't heard of yet. Uh, I believe well, that there should be a new Adam Roberts book out this year. Mm-hmm. No new, new, no new Paul McCauley. Two new Dave Hutchison books out this year. Two Dave Hutchison books. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before because most of the writers you've, you, you've just mentioned are people who have at least some um, some kind of track record from the last uh, two or three or four years. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Sam Miller and Ke- Kelly Robson and that sort of thing. What, what interests me, and I, we've said this before on the podcast and it's becoming a cliche, is uh, who am I going to find this year that's that's like River, River Solomon was last year. Somebody I've never heard from, never heard of, press I've never heard of, or heard of vaguely, 
and, and, and something really stunning. Because one of the things that is increasingly happening, and I'm seeing this from some of these small presses and mainstream presses, mm-hmm. is that certain, solemn, certain science fiction ideas, uh, time travel, time slips, alternate history, and that sort of thing, are now, now fair game for publishers who have no interest in marketing those novels to the science fiction community at all. That's very true. The post-Audrey Niffenegger phenomenon, uh, where you know you, you want the, the kind of thing. If you looked at the marketing a few years ago on Lauren Bucas's uh, The Shining Girls, very good horror novel, which is really what it was. It was not marketed to the horror or the science fiction community. It was marketed to the serial killer readership community, which is probably much larger. Yeah. And also, I mean, one thing that I am looking forward to is uh, there's a new issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Rootlet. The LCRW coming out, which will feature a new Howard Waldrop story, only I think the second or third of the decade for for Howard. Mm. And you know, I am engaged in my relentless campaign to get Howard uh, chosen for the Life Achievement Award at the World Fantasy Awards. I can make my case; it's not very hard. He's wonderful, brilliant, has been for a long period of time, and richly deserves the recognition, mm. certainly for his 80s and 90s work, which was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Look, we don't so have, have things to talk about. We've got four minutes to go. Why don't we just wind up? Well, the thing is, we we haven't. I mean, I've not seen any movies. Uh, I've not seen Arrival yet. Uh, but at, at, at some point, we need to look at film and television uh, and because Annihilation. Uh, annihilation. Um, but one of the things that interests me is more and more you're seeing actual science fiction source material from serious writers in movies like Annihilation and Arrival. And at the same time, you're seeing what, at least from what I've seen so far, was the reboot of the X-Files series in the United States, which I assume you have as well, which is pretty much a mess, actually. Yeah, well, I was going to say that probably uh, you will see more and more of it, at least for a while. Um, The next phase of development in the streaming world, and I'm no expert at all on this, but given mm-hmm. that apparently, you know, with with the amalgamation of Marvel and Disney or whatever it was, the, the last big mm-hmm. joiner, that meant that now you know sort of all of all of these uh, you know, all of that material is going into one particular uh, set of uh, you know, streaming channels, and places like Netflix and Amazon no longer have that content to draw right. or they won't for those contracts. Do this, they have to develop more and more stuff. So you're seeing more and more pushes. This is where the worst worlds come from. This is where you know, the Margaret Atwood adaptations come from. And you're going to see more and more of that for a chunk of time mm-hmm. as Amazon invests more and more heavily in new media creation as Netflix does. And that will be to our advantage. I mean, we, we talk about serious and we don't talk about it. I mean, the Expanse is actually not a trivial science fiction TV show. Um, I, I had no. no affection for it. I didn't like it at all. But Altered Carbon was a serious enough attempt in its own con- uh, context. And, you know, you could see other stuff being done. And certainly stuff is being leveraged and, you know, you know, you know sort of talked about all the time. I mean, we've got, we know that Nadia Korofor has been, uh, had, had work optioned. We know that Nora Jemison's uh, Stone Sky trilogy, that's been mm. optioned and may be developed. That's all serious science fiction. So, I mean, there's a whole array of material. Now, now is the best time ever. What, what the real thing here is whether the stuff's successful or not, or successful enough. Because if it's successful enough, then we'll continue to see it. If it's not, then this will be that brief period when suddenly you look at everything and go, "Hey, that would would have been great if it had just worked out." That's true of series. That's true of TV series. But the one-off movies. The reason I mentioned Arrival and Annihilation. These are not franchises. These are one-off movies based on specific works of fiction. We should add to that uh, Kelly Eskridge's other life based on her novel Solitaire, which I a low-budget independent Australian film, which I thought was very good. And they shot some of it here. Hmm? I I said I know. They shot some of it here in Perth. They shot it. Kelly came out. Right, right, probably in your front lawn. You probably weren't paying attention. Um, And (laughs) they noticed to the right. But my point is, it was an intelligent film based on an intelligent yeah, novel with the author involved in it, and I, there are there certainly excellent science. Hmm? My point is that those films are going to end up on streaming and not in theaters. Of course. What's wrong with that? Nothing. But though, did you see the, the piece this week where Steven Spielberg was saying that films made for streaming services 
shouldn't be eligible for the Oscars. That's very odd. Well, his argument is I they're don't... made for television. No, he said they're made for television movies, basically. Made for television hmm. stuff is eligible for, um, you know, whatever they're, they're you know, eligible for. Uh, so the, the argument could be the argument or, could be that if they're eligible for Emmys as television movies, they should not also be eligible for Oscars. Well, that's kind of his thing. His thing I, is unless they're unless they're released in the theater or in cinemas, then they're not theatrical hmm. films, which is what the Oscars are for. You've frozen up. Oh, sorry, I'm still here. Can you hear me? That, that, can you hear me now? This is the perfect time, listeners, Hello. if Gary can't hear me, because this has been an hour. We've got to our hour, so we can wind up. Um, I may have to some other way to reconnect with Gary, because he's not hearing me. But you've been, but I am here, and you are here, dear listeners. So I'm going to wind up the podcast and say thank you to Gary, who can't hear me and is frozen, and who I'll talk to again in a moment. And thank you for listening. This has been now, as it always is, for 300 